I want everyone to think for a moment, call to mind uh, a relationship that you've had for a long time. This could be a family member, a coworker, a roommate, a friend, uh, somebody that you've known for quite some time. Maybe imagine their name or imagine their face or something just to call that person to mind. And now think for a moment about some sort of pain or difficulty that you've experienced between the two of you. Maybe it was something that you, you sort of uh, confronted shoulder to shoulder, but um, if you can, think of something where there was at one time a wedge between the two of you, something frustrating or upsetting or even causing pain. It probably isn't too difficult to call this person or these people to mind because uh, given enough time, every relationship comes along with some difficulties, struggles, and pain. Every relationship, given enough time, is going to have bumps and hardships and things that are difficult to manage. The origin of these, the source of these could be varied, right? This could be because of political differences. This could be because of how you make or spend or save money. This could be because of how one party in the relationship is or is not generous. Uh, this could be, have to do with the words that people say, destructive patterns in their life, lack of discipline or personal drive in their life. It could be career-related, kid-related, trauma-related. There are so many sources and causes to the pain that we have in our relationships. And my question today, the thing that I'd like to approach, and I'd like for us to understand and hopefully explore together, is how we are to respond to relational pain. As we're in this series throughout the season of Lent about various forms of pain and how Christians are called to address pain, um, oftentimes looks differently than the way the world would manage or address pain. I think there's a unique way that we are called to address pain in our relationships. How is it that we are supposed to confront these situations and how is it we're supposed to experience repair and hopefully growth in the experiences rather than always those experiences coming to some sort of bitter and difficult end. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this now and I'm gonna say it again later on uh, that we are not advocating at any point throughout this teaching or any of the other teachings that somebody should remain in or stay in some sort of an abusive relationship. It's important to know the difference between an abusive relationship and an unhealthy one or an abusive relationship and a painful one the difference between a, a difficult or challenging relationship and one that's toxic and causing trauma or harm. Uh, one of those things, the ones that are painful or unhealthy, a lot of times those can be repaired. Growth can take place, change can happen. Um, and in more abusive relationships, more toxic relationships, usually there is some sort of separation or severing that needs to take place in order for some sort of healing to take place, either in the relationship or in the individuals that they never are to be together again. My aim today is to address relational pain, specifically in a story about Jesus. Now, it was difficult to land on the text for today because the whole Bible, in many ways, from cover to cover, is about relationships. There is uh, salient advice on relationships from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We see it in the teachings, the prophets, the, uh, the law. We see it in the songs. We see it in the gospels and in the epistles and in just about every genre throughout the Bible. There is advice on how relationships should be managed. And a lot of it's timely and a lot of it's very relevant to our day and age right now. It's important for us to consider the whole Bible when we're thinking about relationships, but of course, we don't have time to do that, and so I had to narrow it down to something, and because it's the season of Lent, I wanted to stay in a gospel, and specifically, because a lot of Jesus' pain throughout his life comes to some sort of a pinnacle point toward the end of his life, I wanted to read something from towards the end of his life, and so I'm going to use a text from the Gospel of Mark. Now, the Gospel of Mark is short and hurried, which could be the title of my autobiography, um, Nathan Hoag, <laughs> short and hurried. 
a memoir. Um, but it leaves out a lot of details and a lot of emotions and things that you might see in some of the other Gospels. It sort of gets to the point pretty quick. Um, and it's sort of blunt in some of its um, storytelling. It also leaves out some of the stories that you might see in some of the other Gospels. But the story I'm about to read to you is unique in that it appears in all four Gospels. And there are elements in this story that are apparent and clear in all four Gospels. And that causes me to consider it a little bit differently. It's something that was worth writing about over and over again. And so it's something that I want us to pay close attention to. The story we're going to read today is from the Last Supper. Um, it's Jesus' Passover meal, his last Passover meal before he is crucified. We're going to revisit this story on Monday, Thursday, uh, but in the meantime, we're going to take a little bit of a different approach to it today uh, before we get to that point. So from Mark chapter 14, it says this, in the evening, Jesus arrived with the 12. As they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one? He replied, it is the one of you, 12, who is eating from this bowl with me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago, but how terrible it would be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man to never have been born. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. He broke it into pieces and he gave it to the disciples, saying, take, take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks for it and he gave it to them and they drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. They sang a hymn together, and they went to the Mount of Olives. On the way, Jesus told them, all of you will desert me, for the scriptures say, uh, you will, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. And Peter said to him, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. And Jesus replies, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And the others vowed the same. As we'll see in our service uh, and in our readings throughout our Good Friday experience this year, both Peter and Judas, who is the one who is eating from the same bowl as Jesus, will betray and deny him uh, within the next really few hours. This is when this takes place. And so despite their... Uh, they're pushing back on Jesus's prediction. Despite their uh, denial of Jesus's prediction, they will in fact do that very thing. Imagine being at that table for a moment. Imagine being Jesus. You're with your closest friends, people you've spent a tremendous amount of time with, people you're very intimate and close with, and you know for a fact that two of them at the table who you're breaking bread with and communing with will betray you and deny you. Imagine the relational pain that he must have been experiencing. Now, some will say he wasn't experiencing any pain at all because he knew this was coming. He had predicted this, obviously, and he knew that it was his father's will. And so, you know, he just sort of was taking it in stride. But do you think that neglects the humanity of Jesus that he took on in the incarnation to feel the things that we feel? He, he could have been completely okay with or at least accepting of the reality that he was going to die, be betrayed and denied, and at the same time feel the tremendous relational pain of what it would be like to go through an experience like that. I think he was experiencing tremendous pain in that moment. I'd like to look at Jesus as a model for a second and his experience with these two particular people, um, especially because they appear in all four Gospels, and I think we're supposed to draw something from that. When we are experiencing relational pain, we tend to take 
one of two paths. Now, this is a massive oversimplification. We're way more layered and complex than that. Obviously, you don't just like pick you know, one of two paths anytime you're in some sort of relationally difficult situation. But for the sake of brevity, I'm narrowing it down to two. There are two primary things that we tend to do when we're experiencing relational pain, and then we're going to get to Jesus as a model. The first is dissociation. This posture has more to do with you and you than it does with you and other people. In a situation where you're experiencing relational pain, you may dissociate and experience a different relationship with yourself than is actually true to who you actually are. According to the Oxford Dictionary, dissociation in psychiatry specifically is this. A separation of normally related mental processes resulting in one group functioning independently from the rest, leading to, in extreme cases, to disorders such as multiple personality. So as it says in that definition, this absolutely can be a diagnosable um, situation for somebody, and that is not my job to diagnose somebody, okay? What I want to talk about today is a more broad um, and pervasive version of dissociation that many of us experience and practice on a pretty regular basis, particularly when we run into difficulties in our relationships. Some of us allow ourselves to dissociate in relationally uh, painful situations. We allow ourselves to withdraw and sort of become somebody different than we actually are. There's sort of three ways that I see this take place in other people's relationships and in my own relationships. When we're dissociating, um, that isn't to say uh, that we sort of withdraw or completely become separate from the relationship, but rather we become somebody else. Maybe it happens in the first way, regression. We start to act as though we are still in a different stage of life than we are actually in. And so this happens maybe in your Thanksgiving table with your family or you're with your in-laws or you're with somebody from another part of your life and you sort of regress back to a different form of maturity or a different way of interacting with other people. Another way that this can happen is through mirroring. Um, which is when we adopt mannerisms or behaviors of other people that we are around because it feels safe to sort of mirror the way that they are interacting. This is another form of dissociation. And then third, um, if this takes place through enmeshment, where we could become, our identity gets swallowed up in the identity of another person. And we no longer really exist as an individualized person, but we exist only as we are completely dependent upon and enmeshed with another person. There's other forms that this can take, but regression and mirroring and enmeshment tend to be ways that we see dissociation take place when we're experiencing uh, relational pain. It's one way that we cope with relational pain. When we're in unhealthy relationship scenarios, we tend to dissociate and become somebody other than who we actually are. There's another reaction to relational pain that I, I'd like for us to consider, and that's the, re the reaction of detachment. We could use disengagement as well. It's another word that would be appropriate here. This is the act of withdrawing from the relationship itself. So in the one, we're withdrawing from who we actually are. In the other, we're withdrawing from the relationship or from the people. One of my favorite movie scenes of all time uh, comes from the movie While You Were Sleeping. There, it's like Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner. I can't remember exactly what. And they're all sitting around the table, and they're just yelling at each other all, like, for the entire meal. They're all, they're all, they all think they're having a dialogue, but it's like a dozen monologues happening at the same time they're just talking at each other and there's one character who's at the table who just keeps commenting about how creamy the mashed potatoes are and nobody is paying attention to this guy he just keeps saying it over and over again and sometimes when I find myself in a situation like this at a table I'll just comment about how creamy the mashed potatoes are whether they're actually creamy or not or whether there are even mashed potatoes at the table just to see if anybody's paying attention you know the situation because you've been in it before, whether it's with family or friends or roommates, where everyone's just sort of talking at each other. Nobody's having a real dialogue with each other. I hate this scenario. 
and I withdraw. I hate this scenario, and I disengage. I detach myself from the relationships because I don't want to have to fight to be noticed. I don't enjoy that process. Now, I'm not condoning that kind of behavior. Uh, Obviously, if that is a situation you find yourself in, you should probably step in there at some point and say, hey, this is a bad way to do this. We could do this differently. That might be a good idea. But at the very least, I want us to consider our behavior in that. I want to consider our behavior. And if our our behavior is to tend to detach and to remove ourselves, we aren't really living into our full selves in that moment. To detach and to disengage isn't living into the person that God has created us to be. And maybe you don't want to do that at a kitchen table or a dining room table with a bunch of people, and that is okay. But you need to be in situations where you can be fully known and fully yourself and fully seen and fully understood for who you are. So ask yourself this, where and with whom can you be fully yourself? Where and with whom can you be completely the person that God has created you to be? Those tend to be very safe places for you. But in a realistic scenario, in a realistic world, we can't actually seclude ourselves to only those people and only those situations, right? We're going to end up at that table where everybody's talking at each other. We're going to end up in that conference room where everybody's talking at each other. We're going to end up in those situations where we want to detach and we want to withdraw, and there's got to be a different way, and we're in luck. There happens to be a third way other than dissociation and disengaging, and that is the way of Jesus Specifically, the way that I see Jesus interact at this particular table and the way that he interacts in many of his situations throughout his life is by differentiation. Jesus is a differentiated person in the relationship. He is neither dissociated nor detached. He is differentiated in this relationship. And here in the story in Mark, we see him at a table with his friends, two of whom will do something extremely painful to him. Judas literally traffics him, sells him, makes 30 pieces of silver on his body. This is how Judas treats Jesus, one of his close friends. Consider the pain that that would bring you. Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. He detaches himself completely from the relationship and says, I don't even know who you're talking about. This person who's become sort of famous and infamous in the community and who Peter is very, very close with actually says, I don't even know who this guy is. Three times given the opportunity, he detaches himself, withdraws from even knowing Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He breaks bread with them. He continues in a relationship and in conversation with them, knowing full well what they will do to him. Now, he's not the doormat in the scenario. He's not just taking this lying down. He is very clear about who he is. He is very clear about what he is called to. He is fully confident in these things without a shadow of doubt who he is and what he's called to. And this is a differentiated self. This is a differentiated Jesus in the face of tremendous relational pain. Differentiation and individuality are not the same thing. This is an isolation where you become just sort of the self-sufficient uh, person and you're no longer attached to anybody else. There's a book that I've recommended to probably everybody in the room. You're probably hear- tired of hearing me talking about it. Um, it's a book called The Failure of Nerve, and it's written by a man named Edwin Friedman. Um, if you haven't read it, you absolutely must. It's a prerequisite, so go out and get it. Um, it's a great book. I don't, we should just make copies available. I've given away all my copies, but it's, it's a phenomenal book. And in it, Friedman says this, I want to stress that by well-differentiated leader, I do not mean an autocrat who tells others what to do or others uh, or orders them around. Although any leader who defines himself or herself clearly may be perceived that way by those who are not taking responsibility for their own emotional being and destiny. Rather, I mean someone who has clarity about his or her own life goals and therefore someone who is less likely to become lost in the anxious emotional process 
processes swirling around them. I mean, modifying non-anxious and sometimes challenging, sorry, I skipped a line. I mean, someone who can be separate while still remaining connected and therefore can maintain a modifying non-anxious and sometimes challenging presence. I mean, someone who can manage his or her own reactivity to the automatic reactivity of others and therefore be able to take stands at the risk of displeasing. This is a book about leadership, and you saw that word at the very beginning, but it can be applied to any and all relationships. The kind of differentiation, the well-differentiated person that Friedman is describing here is the person who knows fully who they are. But more and more, I find myself around people who say, well, I can't be around that person anymore because they're unhealthy. I can't be around that person anymore because they're, they're a problem for me. They, they make me feel anxious, or they make me act this way or do this thing. Or on the flip side, I see people saying like, well, I've got I've to keep kind of being around this person because they're family, right? They're family. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep being around this person and I'm just going to kind of acquiesce to whatever situation I need to, whatever persona I need to in order to fit into the family system. Neither of these are healthy ways to react to relational pain. Rather, when we can identify ourselves, know who we are, and then interact, stay connected to those people, whether they are healthy or not, we get to continue to maintain our health and therefore soothe a lot of that pain that we might be experiencing. Differentiation begins with finding our strength and in our strength in our identity. You are unique, you are incredible, you are beautiful, you are worthy, you are desirable, you are made in the very image of God. And if you woke up tomorrow morning and walked into every meeting and every interaction believing that to be completely true about you, can you imagine how different that interaction would be? Can you imagine your ability to manage your own anxiety, to manage um, the scenario around you, knowing full well that you were created in the image of God, you are beautiful, worthy, loved, and completely whole exactly as you are, intended to be the way that you are, by design, a beautiful person. Imagine how your relationships would look. Imagine what would happen next in your life. There's this clip um, from one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I, I'm, I'm just kind of on like a 90s kick right now, so this is another 90s recommendation. If you haven't seen Cool Runnings, get out. I'm just kidding. Um, there's a clip in Cool Runnings that I'm going to show you in just a minute um, that, that uh, features a guy named Junior Bevel. And, and he's, Junior is, um, throughout the entire movie, constantly acquiescing to what his dad wants. His dad is wealthy and successful, and he wants so bad um, for his son to do all the things that he has done. Um, and so he, Junior has like no confidence in himself. He has no identity. He has no idea really who he is. And there's this sort of culmination of that when uh, a man named Yule Brenner um, pulls him into a bathroom and yells some encouragement at him that he desperately needs to hear. And it's the tipping point for his relationship with his dad and his teammates and a bunch of other people in the movie. So let's show that clip really quick. Now look in the mirror and tell me what you see. You see Junior. You see Junior. Well, you want to know what I see? I see pride. I see power. I see a badass mother who don't take no crap of nobody. You really see all that? Yeah, man. But it's not about what I see. It's about what you see. Now look in this mirror and tell me again what you see. <clears throat> well, I see... Pride! Pride! Right. Power! Power! 
see a badass mother who, who don't take, take no crap off of nobody. Again, I see pride. Can I hear you? I see power. I see a badass mother who won't take no crap off of nobody. Once again, I see pride. Junior, I see power. I see a badass mother who won't take no crap off of nobody. That's right. That's right, Junior Bevel. Wait, wait, where are you going? I. I, whoever did costume design for that scene alone should win an Oscar. It's incredible. Um, that scene is way over the top, obviously. <laughs> and maybe you don't have a Yule in your life to just scream encouragement at you in a mirror. Um, and maybe that's not the point. But at this point in the movie, everything changes in his relationship with his dad. and Everything changes in his relationship with the world around him because he knows who he is kind of for the first time in his life. And he stops acquiescing to the situation around him or to the relationships around him that are unhealthy or toxic or frustrating or bothersome or painful. He's differentiated in that very moment. And I genuinely think that the way of Jesus is one in which we are differentiated in the relationships that we hold, whether they are painful or healthy or whether they're bothersome or they're they're moving along and they're smooth sailing. You in your life will experience relational pain. You probably are right now. And in some of those situations, yes, you need to create separation and you need to sever that relationship. But in a lot of situations, if you can discover who you are in the relationship, it will dramatically affect the way that the relationship carries on. This is the way that Jesus models relationships for us at a moment of such extreme and intense relational pain that any one of us would have walked away, and yet he continues to engage. He continues to stay attached. Friedman, in his book, goes on and writes this. He says, whether we are considering a toothache, a tumor, a relational bind, a technical problem, crime, or the economy, most individuals and most social systems, irrespective of their culture, gender, or ethnic background, will naturally choose to revert to chronic conditions of bearable pain rather than face the temporary, more intense anguish of acute conditions that are the gateway to becoming free. Sometimes it requires a moment of acute pain in a relationship, maybe internally, maybe in your relationship and communication with God, wherever you want to apply that, before we can overcome or do without the chronic pain that comes with a life of difficult and stressful and painful relationships. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, setting us free in so many ways. Um, And one of these ways is in our relationships, not free from the relationships, but free in the relationships. Um, You've created every single person in this room in your image. You love us as we are. Um, You've sent your son to us and for us because you loved us. Your spirit continues to dwell in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives because you love us. God, would you teach us to live our lives as people who are loved deeply and completely by you. People who are worthy and people who are um, exactly as you would have us to be. Teach us to live our lives that way, Lord. I pray these things in your name. Amen.